And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We're still in our series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow. And we come to Revelation 19, 11. And this is the Word of God. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name of which he's called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sword, sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're glad that we have this morning the word and the sacrament uh, as we come before you. And we thank you, Father, that you speak to us through both. You strengthen us through both. So, Father, by your Spirit, work in us today through your Word, through the sacrament. We might, Lord, be encouraged and be equipped for the battle that you've called us to join in. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The triumphant Christ that John sees in Revelation 19 that we mentioned last week is is not what I'd call your Sunday school Jesus. Uh, you know, in Sunday school, we tell stories about Jesus' birth or his trip to the temple when he was 12, uh, about his teaching, the, the, the parables. We, we talk about the miracles he does and uh, uh, how, how he loves people, uh, his baptism, his temptation. Uh, we tell about his triumphal entry. Uh, we talk about the cross, uh, the resurrection, and, and the ascension. Um, but in Revelation, we hear Jesus described in uh, in in, uh, like we've never, never heard in the Gospels. Uh, you know, in Revelation 1, we saw a similar description to this. We've seen him described as a slain lamb, and now we have Jesus, the triumphant Christ, here. Now, the question some might have is, why do we need such a Jesus? Well, the answer comes as we get to this last section of the sixth vision uh, that John had, vision that began back in 17.1. And it begins with the final defeat of all the enemies of God. Uh, We saw in Revelation 18 the crushing of the great prostitute, the city of Babylon representing the city of man. Uh, And and now uh, we see more enemies ahead that we've already met in Revelation. And so we'll see Jesus defeat the false prophet and the beast, and then the great dragon Satan himself. Uh, And he'll take care of all of his enemies. So to see a triumphant Christ who's ready for battle, let's go to the text. Again with 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now the same phrase, heaven open, was back in 4.1, but that was for John to see into heaven. Here, uh, it is for Jesus and his armies to march out of heaven. Uh, The final battle is about to begin, if you will. And of course, some look at this and see uh, the, the ready for the battle of Armageddon. Um, picture a very worldly type war with weapons and troops and, and this huge military battle. 
Now we've come to see these things here as, as a spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. Paul makes clear in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We'll see more about that. Notice it's a white horse. White because it means he wins, all right? And a horse because it is war. Uh, a, a king would, would ride a donkey in times of peace. We just saw a few weeks ago Jesus march into to Jerusalem on that donkey there on the, the, the um, Palm Sunday uh, as the Prince of Peace. Now he comes on a horse. And Jesus is the rider. It says, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. All right. Uh, and right, with righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. His name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Now here's where in one sense it would just be good to maybe be with John and, and just sit down uh, and get a cup of coffee, cup of tea, and just meditate on what he says about Jesus uh, here, this vision of Jesus. Uh, keep in mind, he's writing to a people who are facing persecution, who are facing opposition, much like we find ourselves facing, or uh, many people in the world do. He's writing to people uh, who have a world like ours. And he's careful then to describe Jesus here. So again, we could probably spend a week on each of these verses. We won't, uh, but we could. Uh, and he pulls some of his language right out of Revelation 1. Some of it comes out of Isaiah 63. Some of it comes out of, of Psalm uh, uh, 2 uh, for us. Um, Jesus is called uh, faithful, first of all, because he fulfills all the promises of God. Every single one of Jesus is faithful to all of his promises, and we can know he'll carry them out. He's called truth uh, because he personifies truth. He himself is truth. Now, if your eyes drop down the page, remember he's called the Word of God. And then the sword that comes from his mouth, that's the Word of God. So we're going to come back to this imagery, but keep in mind he is the truth by which all things are measured. All right. We can be sure of righteous judgment. It's in the present tense here. How often do we read the news or something happened and we say what? That's not fair. You know, we want, we want to fix something that's happened. Uh, well, here's what we know. One day, Jesus, who is completely fair judge, will set everything right. In fact, to, to paraphrase N.T. Wright, the fact is that when today we use the word judgment, for some people it has a, just a negative connotation. Uh, in our postmodern world. You know, they don't like that. If anybody has a right to judge anybody else. So we need to remind ourselves that all through the Bible, it speaks of God's coming judgment. And it's a good thing, the Bible says. God's judgment is to be celebrated. It's to be longed for. It's to be anticipated. We're told people shout for joy at God's judgment. The, the trees clap their hands, in fact, uh, over it. So we live in a world of injustice and bullying and violence uh, and arrogance and oppression. In doing so, the thought that there might come a day when those who are the bullies and those who are the oppressor, those who are the arrogant, those who are the violent, 
Well, should we say they get what's coming to them? They'll get their due. Uh, and the poor and weak who have been trampled on will get theirs as well. So when God sees a world that's uh, full of exploitation and of wickedness, uh, a good God is going to be a God of judgment. He's simply going to, he's going to set everything right. His eyes are flames of fire. Again, right out of chapter 1. Uh, means he doesn't just look at us and judge on outward appearances. Uh, he, sees, uh, he sees our hearts. He sees all the facades that, that we put up. There's no way to hide our sins from Jesus. The fire gives us the idea of the wrath that comes. He wears these crowns, the diadems, uh, because he has a great authority. Uh, we, sang, we sang about it in our first hymn. Maybe you remember back in chapter 12 and again in chapter 13 <clears throat> that Satan, the dragon, and the beast put on crowns to try to imitate Jesus as king, to try to imitate a kingdom. But they were counterfeit kings, and those are counterfeit kingdoms. Only Jesus, the true king of kings. And then John says he has a name that only Jesus knows. Now, why does he, why does he have a name that he doesn't want us to know? They, that, the, the idea is if, if you know somebody's name, was always seen as a way to have power over that person. Uh, so that you, 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 uh, you, you, if you knew somebody's name, you could, you could have the power over them. Well, quite frankly, nobody has power over Jesus. All right? Uh, it also points to the, to the mystery surrounding Jesus and his coming. Um, you know, don't ever think, we have it all figured out how this second coming thing works out. Okay? We don't. All right? Nobody does. But Jesus does. All right? We trust in that. He keeps that. We know a lot about Jesus from his word. We know everything we need to know. But we do not know everything about Jesus. Uh, there's more to him than we could possibly know. And our study of him will actually continue for all eternity. And it will never be exhausted. Because he's such a great savior will never exhaust the wonder of who Jesus is. And he's wearing a robe here that says is dipped in blood. Now, some translations have sprinkled in blood, uh, which is probably, uh, might even be, a, is what he's given Isaiah 63, is what is in mind here. Now this blood is not his blood, as we might initially think. It's not the blood of the cross. Again, some scholars think that. But most see here reference back to Isaiah 63. Uh, we've used this in connection with our mission conference before. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel and marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So God, through Christ, has been already conquering his enemies, and that will continue. Then he's called the Word of God. 
Now John develops this idea in the first chapter of his gospel that as the word of God, he makes God known to us. It also speaks to his role in creation as he spoke the creation into being with his mouth. And that by his providence, day by day, he directs it. And then we have the armies of heaven following him. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. All right, now, here's where you see the idea of a spiritual battle. All right, how many armies do you see go off to battle wearing white, fine linen garments? Because remember, that's the very same thing we were described as, as wearing in the previous verses as dressed for the wedding. All right, wedding feast. It's the very same thing we saw the martyrs wearing underneath the altar. Um, most, most, uh, most army uniforms are not white linen. And notice what else about those soldiers. They have no weapons. Do you see it? They're just riding on their horses. There's no swords, no spears, no catapults, no slingshots. They're just there. So this is another reason why we view this as a spiritual battle that Jesus leads us into. And we are this army. It's all the people of God who follow after him. Adam's part of this army. Abraham's part of this army. And we're part of this army. And we're following after Christ in the great battle. And then watch what he does in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Isaiah 49, 2 speaks of the sharp sword that comes from pointing to Jesus' mouth. We saw it in Revelation 1 as well. And coming from his mouth, it points to the spoken word. By his word, by the gospel, he strikes down the nations. Uh, so as we draw these references together, Jesus is the truth. He's the Word of God. His Word is powerful. And that's why we're engaged in a battle for truth today. The assault on truth in our postmodern world is relentless. And just so we go back, we're told there's no such thing as absolute truth in the world of mathematics. All right? Now, it's interesting. People saw that coming a century ago. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the English philosopher, saw, saw it. He warned nearly 100 years ago that we will shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two makes four, which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure, and hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that grass is green. Of course, George Orwell, in the book 1984 that he wrote in 1949, and in that story, the totalitarian state of Oceania uh, brainwashed the citizens to say and believe absurd things. Uh, and under threat of torture, the protagonist of the book, Winston Smith, is forced to declare that two plus two equals, do you remember? Five. And now it's happening. Seattle, Washington schools, they challenged that math is true. They said, who gets to say what the right answer is to a math problem? Again, I hope it's not the people building our bridges, all right? You know, um, that sort of thing. Or sending our spaceships out into outer space. I mean, common sense biology, nature itself shows you male and female. 
Somehow we're supposed to ignore biological truth and instead give ourselves to people's feelings. Friends, this biological nonsense, i got good news for you. It will one day come to an end. Uh, This math nonsense will come to an end. Because it says Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, as the psalmist told us. Now, let's be honest. There are those who, who object to seeing Jesus this way. They don't want to see Jesus connected with the wrath of God. Jesus is a good guy. He loves people. He's kind. You know, that sort of thing. Miroslav Wolf is a Christian theologian from Croatia. And he said he used to reject the idea of God's wrath. He thought the idea of an angry God was barbaric. It was completely unworthy of uh, of a God of love. So you may remember that Croatia experienced a very brutal war back in the early 90s. Uh, terrible atrocities were committed neighbor against neighbor and countryman against countrymen. And what Wolf saw gave him a, a new understanding of the necessity of God's wrath. He writes this, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a, was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region for which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who was not wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God is not wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So we have that climax in verse 16 that will set us up for next week, by the way. The story will continue. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that name's already been given to Jesus back in chapter 17. Here we have it reaffirmed and should fill us with great joy and yes with great hope that he's triumphant Christ and he's ready for battle. He's ready for what's going to come. So today, well, you know, what about us? Just ask you, how, you know, how do you see Jesus? I mean, we see sometimes as a baby in a manger, we, we, we picture that. We see how he cares for the outcast. We see how, uh, we see how he teaches, how he heals people. We come to the Lord's Supper, and it, 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 it helps us remember his decisive victory at the cross. What he did there, what we've already sung about this morning. Um, so what, what John writes here in Revelation is a portrait of Jesus we don't often think about. But we need to remember that encourages as we watch the news or as we read the headlines. What we remember is Jesus wins the decisive victory in history. We need to remember, friends, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. But the general that we follow is none other than the triumphant Christ. Today, on behalf of the triumphant Christ, I invite all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ Remember, it's in good standing of an evangelical church to come to this table. To be reminded of the cross, 
and to be reminded of the triumph of Christ who's ready for battle. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, we're delighted you're here. Uh, but the Bible would urge you not to participate. Rather, just with the elements passed, you can see some suggestions for you in the bulletin. Uh, please talk to one of us afterwards about Jesus. I would suggest this text makes it a very urgent conversation. Likewise, children not have been examined by the session, should not partake, but if you're desiring to, please let me know. Uh, believers, this is a meal that, that encourages us as we contemplate what's happening in the world around us. Here at this table, we're assured of His love. We're assured of His victory. We're sure that we're His forever. And so we're called to examine ourselves to make sure we discern the body of Christ, to make sure we discern the incredible price that He paid for us. You know, if we have sin, that means if we have sin that we don't want to turn from. If we have sin that we don't think is a big deal, God doesn't care about that sin. Then we're not discerning the price He paid in giving His robes for ours. We're not hearing what Revelation is saying. In that case, the Bible urges us not to partake, but to search our heart in prayer. But for those of us who need strength to battle sin, that's most of us, I would think, or all of us, and the healthy reminder of who leads the battle, and I suspect that's all of us who follow Jesus, that by all means we need to come and eat. So let's take a moment and each confess our sins uh, privately uh, before a holy God. Father, we come and acknowledge that we are sinners. We have gone our own way, Father, and we, we battle sin all the time. And we confess that this morning. We ask your forgiveness. Father, we're grateful that because of what Christ did at the cross, we stand forgiven and we're yours forever. Father, what great hope we have as the people of God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.